I remember traveling around Europe, and people asking me, where are you from? I'd say New York. They would ask what I was, and I'd say Jewish, African-American. They would get this perplexed look and ask, but where are you from? I explain that my family doesn't know. Not knowing is the product of slavery. You don't know. My middle name is Furtick. It's my mother's maiden name. How does an African-American end up with a German last name? Because my ancestors were thought to be property of a German. This history doesn't feel like a distant past to me. It's the TMI Project Podcast. I'm Micah. And I'm Eva Tenuto. Today is August 14th, 2020, and it's the one-year anniversary of the release of the New York Times Magazine 1619 Project, a reframing of the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the center of our national narrative. It was the brainchild of magazine staff writer Nicole Hannah-Jones. In honor of that incredible work and the collective work we all must do, we're releasing a special bonus episode. In June 2017, we partnered with two organizations to present Reclaiming Our Time, monologues by five writers responding to personal encounters with the history of slavery. The Slave Dwelling Project raises awareness about the history of enslaved Africans by organizing overnight stays at sites where they once lived. Historic Huguenot Street, a national landmark in New Pulse, New York, is comprised of seven stone houses from the 18th century that were inhabited by Huguenot settlers fleeing religious persecution in France. Contrary to popular belief that slavery was practiced exclusively in the South, northern states were also dependent on enslaved African labor in the 17th and 18th centuries. In fact, slavery was not legally abolished in New York State until 1827. So Reclaiming Our Time began with a series of writing workshops and an overnight stay in a preserved cellar kitchen on Huguenot Street, where we know that enslaved Africans once lived. Micah and I both participated, and it was actually the first workshop that Micah led. That's true. Micah, do you remember going into the space for the first time? Yeah, I do. Thinking back on it, you and I went to check it out a couple of weeks before the overnight. We had to walk down these steps and duck under a low door frame. It was interesting because the floor above was where the enslaving French family would have lived, but we didn't see that space. We only saw that space below, slave quarters. I never thought about that before. It, um, it definitely held this mysterious presence in a way. You could see the light coming through the cracks in the floorboard. It was haunting because you could imagine the lives going on up there and reflect on the stolen lives below. It was in that space below that the stories came together. We met outside on the cellar of June 19th or Juneteenth, which is the day we celebrate the emancipation of those who have been enslaved in the United States. In fact, there was a Juneteenth celebration going on in New Pulse that night with singing and dancing and food. It felt like a send-off like our ancestors were already gathering. Before we descended, we all sat around a campfire with Terry James, who's a living historian. His great-great-great-grandparents were enslaved in South Carolina, and this is what he does. He leads these sleepovers. One thing to know about Terry is that he wears shackles all night during the sleepovers. He told us why in a recent interview. I just wanted to get a sense of how it was to be shackled when you're sleeping, and I thought about my ancestors who came to the Middle Passage. My first night, it was, it was tough. Felt like I was sleeping on my bones. 
because you were laying in one spot and you could not, you know, just get comfortable. I just thought about those people that were there who did not have an option to sleep wet, to sleep cold, to sleep hungry, to sleep when you've just been raped, beaten. You need to tell the story. You need to call their names. I'll just add that we named the performance in honor of Representative Maxine Waters from California. It was around that time in 2017 that she sparked a viral meme when she shut down Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin's rambling response to her question by repeating the phrase, Reclaiming my time. Several times. Reclaiming my time. We were doing our... our Reclaiming my time. The time belongs to the gentlelady from California. Because that's what we were doing. We were reclaiming our time that night. The resulting monologues were performed at the Reformed Church of New Paltz on Saturday, September 16th. You'll notice as you listen that the stories actually follow a narrative in the order that they were told. The anticipatory visceral feelings of going into the space, what it was like to sleep there, and eventually, what does it mean for us now? Being in that space was like turning the radio dial. We tuned into a different frequency, a different mode of perception, so we could receive what the space had to show us. I think on a spiritual plane, as well as a kind of practical tool, felt like this convergence of past, present, and future. That we were touching something from the past and being in the space, as well as the connection to what is happening in our lives now, what is still happening in the world. But to the future, there is a sense of possibility that all of this is making room for something new and better. I think that was pretty clear for us that night, and I think it comes through in the stories we shared. I know what you're all thinking. What does one wear to a slave quarter sleepover? <laughs> I'm not the kind of person who reads the entire email or opens attachments. I'm sure the answer to this was somewhere in there. But no matter, I've arrived on Huguenot Street in my zip-off pants and light leggings underneath. I've got a sweatshirt in my backpack, and I'm hoping that I brought everything I'll need tonight. I genuinely have no idea what to expect. I'm anxious about whether or not my 18-year-old nephew understands why I insisted that this is how we spend our weekend. From the parking lot, I can already hear the not-so-distant sound of several beating drums. I start to throw myself around and dance a little bit to entertain him and to get him to loosen up a bit. As this is happening, an adorable white older lesbian couple stops to tell us how much they are also enjoying the drums. I relax even more. This is New Paltz after all. Nothing much has changed. I feel confident it won't be too different from any other event I've been to here before. I'm from here. I was one of maybe 25 kids of color in the district, maybe one of six in my class. I'm confident if I knocked on every door in my old neighborhood, I would not come across a single family that wasn't white. It's like there's an invisible barrier that keeps people of color out or relegated to Colonial Arms, Southside, and Meadowbrook. Growing up, I played in the Huguenot Cemetery as a child. We came here on field trips. As I walk towards the celebration, I try and remember what I know about this place. 
Did I ever learn about the history of the Huguenots? Yeah, I remember that. Did they talk about slavery in reference to the Huguenots? No, I have no recollection of that. As an adult, I obviously know there must have been slaves here, but before this moment, I had never given it much thought. As my nephew and I walk between the houses towards the big white tent, I feel curious. I know next to nothing about my family, where we came from, or what we are. Was I a fearless leader who beat up bullies on the playground because I'm a descendant of Harriet Tubman? Is my ability to pick out the most expensive thing in any room because I'm really African royalty? <laughs> Have I always longed to find whoever my real family is because there is some tribe somewhere waiting for me to make my way back home? There are so many things I just don't know. It's no surprise I have zero connection to my heritage and never showed much interest in learning it. We, we push away that which is painful, and understanding who I am and where I come from has always been painful. You know those family tree assignments you get in elementary school? Though I had a mom and a half-brother and a father and grandparents that I had met on occasion, we never really functioned like a family. So my assignments were always made up of my favorite celebrities. I never knew anything about my family or ethnicity, and when I was home, I mostly was parked in front of the TV, so I credited Julia Roberts, Alice and Janney, Calissa Flockhart, and Lucy Lawless among the people who raised me. <laughs> These actresses raised me, the church raised me, the Hudson Valley raised me. They are who I see in my mind's eye when I think of who makes up my identity. So because of all of that, not really knowing anyone who was black then or now, I've never stopped to think about racism or slavery or how it relates to my history or my life now. I've never really had a reason to. I briefly acknowledge this and think about how this is part of my privilege. As I say hello to the people at the Juneteenth celebration, grab food and sit down, I think, how do you move forward without knowing where you really come from? I'm black, I carry the color of my skin out into the world with me. Sometimes it's a burden and sometimes it's a badge. I want to understand it more so it can be more of a badge than a burden. The media's portrayal of being black is all the information I've ever had. It's hard for me, and probably a lot of other people, to identify myself in that light. I focus on the fact that I was well-educated, well-spoken, graduated high school without becoming pregnant, got my degree, traveled all over the world, never really worried about debt. How could I do that and be black at the same time? I need to address this identity, this part of my life, even though I've told everyone that I'm here for my nephew and his growth, I'm really here for myself too. When we've had a minute to take in the Juneteenth celebration, it's different than I thought it would be. I expected it to be more like a fair with tents and people passing stuff out. I didn't expect it to be an actual ceremony. I can't believe I'm not one of only two or three black people occupying the space, or that this event is celebrating Black History Month in a, black history in a month other than February. I'm in New Paltz, sitting at a table full of black people, and all around me, there are just more black people. I wonder what the white people think as they pass by on the street. I've never seen this many black people in the same space outside of Poughkeepsie. Is this even legal? Why has it happened this way? New Paltz is progressive. 
we're not celebrating Christopher Columbus Day anymore, right? Uh, there's an amazing surge chapter in the Hudson Valley, and so many people have shown their support for Black Lives Matter, yet we're still so segregated. The Juneteenth program consists of the African drummers who were playing when we arrived, Terry James, a board member of the Slave Dwelling Project, Kim Harris, a folk singer who sings the songs that tell of African American history. This is what I imagine being in a black church is like. As Eva speaks on behalf of the TMI project and lists the names of some of the black men who have been murdered, you can see the pain on people's faces. Some are still, others have their head down. Most of them are older and have de a deeper connection to the history of slavery and the consequences still playing out today. I notice there's no mention of any black women who've faced the same fate, even in this space. We have to work on that. When Kim begins to sing, you can feel the whole room shift. People are singing along and clapping. Others have tears coming from their closed eyes. You can tell they are remembering. It's nice to watch the old black ladies' faces light up at familiar songs. I feel glad that I didn't pass up this experience, to, this connection to my heritage for another weekend on the couch. I'm surprised by all the connections I can make to this event and everyone around me now that I'm trying. I realize that I know more than I think I do about the history of African Americans. I actually do know a lot of the words to the songs Kim sings. I know them because my mother used to sing them and I'm sure her mother used to sing them to her. That's something, it's comforting in a way. It makes me feel like I did have something passed to me from generations past. When I finally got away from my family, I couldn't put enough distance between me and them. I pushed them away so hard that I didn't recognize I was pushing away a big part of myself in the process. My connection to my blackness might be flimsy because of my lack of connection to my family, but it's there. I'm not sure how to fix it, but I'm here and I'm trying. For now, it's nice to chat with people at the table who look like me and be able to share something that feels important with the younger generation of my family. I realize now more than ever how important it is to me that my nephew's here. After the celebration, we set up our sleeping bags in the cellar and head to, out to join Terry around the fire. There are only eight of us now. We pass around fruit to share and Terry tells us what he knows about the history of the slaves. He knows so much. I focus in on one particular fact Terry shares. Did you know that if a black woman got pregnant as the result of being raped by her slave owner, the baby was kept and classified as a slave? But if a white woman became pregnant with a black man's child, the baby could be cut from the woman's stomach and stomped on or smothered at birth? Most people have never really heard anything like that. As we walked back to the house where we're going to spend the night, I think about the article I recently read about Germany. The Germans continue to atone for every single tragedy they were ever involved in, and not just with I'm, and I'm, and I'm sorry, but with reparations. We, on the other hand, have adopted the attitude, if it doesn't directly have anything to do with our lives, it doesn't matter. Then we wonder why we never make any progress, why slavery continues to morph instead of heal. Isn't a permanent a permanent resolution better than ignoring the problem until it's blowing up in our faces, in our homes, in our communities? It's hard work. For me, the process has been confusing, to say the least. I can't quite connect myself to a lineage of Africans, people who are taken from their homes against their will, 
put on a ship with little or no per provisions, sold in a foreign land to be beaten, raped, sold again, and hanged, who were later put down at every turn and now watch as their appropriated culture is co-opted, profited off of, and yet they're still seen as less than. On the other hand, I can't quite connect to the white part, the culture that raised me, stole the Africans from their homeland, took everything they had from their names to their bodies, who now march on Charlottesville and routinely kill unarmed black people, or those who ignore any of this is happening. The definition of insanity is to repeatedly do the same thing and expect different results. I don't expect myself or any of us to figure this out overnight, but we have to start doing things differently. If you think about the history of poverty, the prison system, and race relations, really think about where those things started and where we are, it's kind of mind-blowing. We're basically in the same spot with nicer sneakers and better movies. I'm committing tonight to be different. As I fall asleep and reflect on where I am, the journal entry I wrote and the others I heard, my final thought is, black or white, rich or poor, we are all slaves to the system. And after 150 years, it's time for us to acknowledge our chains and break free. When you ask me to speak about slavery, you are asking me to speak of my African ancestors. I've visited with unnamed and unknown ancestors in dreams and imagined them crowding around me with curiosity and delight. I have searched since then to find an authentic way back to be in communion with the ancestors who may or may not have been slaves. When you ask me to speak of my African ancestors, I know and you know, we both know, that the first ideas that come to mind are of human beings suffering pain and degradation, suffering great sorrow and loss. I have tried to imagine into this experience for a long time. I've read books, good books, like Dessa Rose, Beloved, or incidents in the life of a slave girl, and too many others to recall right now. And these books have taken me part of the way into this imagining, but it never felt close enough. The night before joining the Slave Dwelling Workshop, I'm at home writing, trying to prepare. As I write the word slave, a strong voice in my head thunders, we are not slaves. We are not slaves. Is this my voice alone? Am I avoiding something? I had jumped at the chance to sleep in a cellar once inhabited by enslaved Americans. I thought that finally I'd be able to press my nose right up to the glass of that world and look right in. My expectations were a vague mix of fear, superstition, and excitement. Yes, I've inherited my Jamaican grandmother's superstitious nature. Would I be overwhelmed with seismic shifts of emotion or maybe injured by a malevolent spirit? The most challenging part of this overnight, aside from the momentary discomfort, is my fear and anticipation of what collective presence might be revealed to me. Or maybe, finally, I would see with crystal clarity 
the world as my ancestors saw it, felt it, lived it, and breathed it. None of that happened. Instead, I spent a collegial night in my sleeping bag on a clean swept floor of an historic cellar surrounded by fellow writers and seekers. The conversation is ongoing. Tamika is on her luxurious air mattress. Tina Lynn has her hood over her head and is scrolling down her iPad as people talk. Terry James is still wearing his Union soldier uniform and hat with a gold bugle on the crown. It almost feels cozy here with all eight of us sitting cross-legged, tired, yet anticipatory on our sleeping bags. I'm sure that we're all wondering what this night will be. Tamika asked Terry if he has a particular ritual when he does the overnight in slave dwellings. Terry raises his arms, which are in shackles. This is what I do, he says, looking sad. He talks about a cold night in South Carolina when he could see the moon through the cracks in the ceiling boards. The room is damp, but not uncomfortably damp, and there are two fans moving the air, which also makes it cold. I'm looking straight at the tall cooking hearth decorated with LCD candles, a small vase of daisies, and a wooden image of Elegba, the Yoruba deity, both trickster and guardian of the pathway, who I brought from home. We are eight people unified by shared space and shared purpose, each of us scribbling on our pages. This feels intimate, like family, and this is surprising to me. I'm feeling grimy and tired, but good, because I imagine the spirit of this place is glad for our presence. And beyond that, I imagine the spirits of my own ancestors are glad for my attention and my intention. There's a feeling of devotion in this experience. This is prayer the way I can accept it. I'm feeling very focused here, connected, maybe to my co-dwellers, but certainly to my own purpose. This feeling is surprising to me because I think I was fearing trauma and horror from this experience. We don't know, but we long to know. I fall asleep thinking about those who lived here. Were they too hot or too cold in their cellars? What happened if the wife was summoned to the big house? What will the ancestor show me? Upon waking in the morning, one dream is crystal clear. She's a thin black girl, maybe 20 or 22 years old, her hair combed into a small natural that halos her head. I've never seen her before, but on this night, she appears to me in a series of confused dreams. Now we're in a room somewhere with others and we are dancing together. It's a funny dance, some kind of folk dance. We hold hands and pull in close up on demi point of one foot, the other leg bent at the knee. Then we pull away, still holding hands. Then back in close, each of us rising onto the same demi point of one foot, holding the other leg bent and poised in the air until we fall away out of the small circle and back onto two feet. It's an odd, solemn dance, 
and I awake with the impression of this girl vivid in my mind, one foot in, two feet out, pull your partner close, then fall away. Climbing the steps out of the cellar, I cross the street to the house with the indoor plumbing, splashing water on myself, reviewing my dream, fishing for details. I'm suddenly filled with a sense of love that wells up in my body. Love, love, love. This was our dance of love. I'm left with a residual feeling of being pulled away from the people I love most in the world. So this, after all that tense expectancy, was my meeting with the ancestors through dance. We met in a space and we danced. This is what the ancestors showed me. No matter the physical and emotional pain we've endured, the ugliness of a people and a culture that tried to break our humanity, reduce us to less than beasts, that tried to grind our divine nature to dust, in the face of all that, we, the children of enslaved Africans, are still connected to each other and to all humanity by powerful bonds of love and reverence. Does this surprise me? Not a bit. I felt this truth without words ever since I heard my first gospel song many years ago. I, who am a Jewish Unitarian agnostic with no previous exposure to the tradition of gospel music, heard clearly the deep power of the gospel voice. I knew then, without words, that I was hearing the voice of divinity in bondage. And when I discovered African dance, after many years of struggling to feel myself in the rigid shapes of ballet, modern, and jazz, I knew that I had found my true language. Because dance is a language. It's a language that my ancestors speak. And I have always known myself as a dancer. Since my first toddling steps, struggling to keep up with the first dancers in my life, my mother and her twin sister, I have always been a dancer. And whether I've known it or not, I have always been and will continue to be in communion with my ancestors. I am their story and they are mine. And I will always keep dancing. Thank you. Dear ancestors and all original inhabitants of this dwelling, hello from the future. As I lay here writing, I realize the first thing you'll probably notice are the lights. I tried to imagine the light of the fire as the only source of light you have. I have artificial light so I can write these words even though it's dark outside. You have probably never held a pen or paper. There's so little firsthand written history from you or your counterparts. So our history has been served to me personally in piecemeal. So many stories have died with you, many undoubtedly so painful that the repression of them were both inevitable and intentional. I want all Americans to take this in. En masse, the history of an entire race in this country is so painful 
that our great-great-grandparents wouldn't even discuss it with the people they love and trust. The history of the enslaved people in America, the real history, didn't make it into the history books. In fact, last I heard, and according to a middle school in Texas, you, my enslaved ancestors, were just displaced immigrants or migrant workers. I was never taught the truth about you in school. I'm in sixth grade and my history teacher, Ms. Kennard, walks in, opens up to whatever page in that brick of a history book, then painstakingly transcribes every single word of the chapter we're reading in complete silence. Only the sound of the chalk on the board. She never even bothers to look at us. Then, we each take turns reading her transcriptions from the board. It is, in fact, the most mind-numbing period of the day, and sometimes I think I actually fall asleep while I'm reading out loud. <laughs> In 1492, Christopher Columbus, blah, 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 what's his name, walked across the moon and planted the American flag, one step for who gives any shits. George Washington was inaugurated as our first president on I wish I gave any fucks about what you're talking about right now. It's strange how disinterested I'd become in history that year. I mean, yeah, she was a lousy teacher. But even now, I have a keen interest in historical events and my idea of a ring-a-ding vacation is generally a full week at the Smithsonian. I'm kind of a nerd that way. I remember the day I came to class right after having watched the PBS documentary on Emmett Till. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old black child from Mississippi accused of offending a white woman by whistling at her in a grocery store. My guess is that he just went in and bought the 1955 equivalent of Skittles and a soda. He was 14. Several nights after the store incident, this woman's kin went to Emmett's house, abducted him, and mutilated him before shooting him in the head and sinking his body in the Tallahatchie River. His mother insisted on a public funeral service with an open casket to show the world the brutality of the killing. Emmett's murderers were acquitted of his killing. Mom, isn't our family from the South? Is this what happened to black people when you were younger? This was only 60 years ago. Mom, is this our history? God, I cried and cried that night and lamented Miss Kennard's class even more. Ancestors, I'm not particularly proud of this, but in the 10th grade, I all but dropped out of school, showing up for tests only. I aced those tests, pissing off teachers and administrators alike. How could this girl, who hardly attends class, get A's on all the tests? Well, if the test questions were, what is the velocity of Ms. Kennard's ass jiggling as she regurgitates textbook copy on the board, I guess I would have failed. What I'd figured out was that none of these teachers gave a shit about me. 
And if I just read the textbooks and had a few conversations with my classmates in the bathroom in between nicotine contraband, I could pretty much figure things out. Anyway, post Emmett Till documentary, I understood that whatever Ms. Kennard was doing, it wasn't teaching me history. So I cut her class and spent hours in the library reading and researching black history in America. Told you, I'm a nerd. I have seen pictures of the apparatus used to terrorize and enslave you, ancestors, in pictures and books and movies. I've even seen some of the artifacts behind glass at museums, but it always felt so sterilized and set away from the scene of the crime. Tonight, to actually see some of the torture devices in the space where they were used, this additional context is so new to my senses. We don't talk about this much, but I think there's a tangible, visceral deprivation I feel because so much of our history is lost. It's not zero impact. I once tried to complete one of those ancestry maps online. The exercise ended with me in tears in the ice cream aisle at Hannaford's. I couldn't get any further than my great grandparents. I don't know where we landed on this continent or where we lived on the other. There's a permanent hole in my heart that maybe this experience will help to fill. Ancestors, I know that you didn't have the right to own anything I'm touching right now. And so I'm trying to imagine myself here with you living in this small room centuries ago without light bulbs or pens, appropriate clothing or ventilation, sleeping on cold, hard wooden planks. And what I feel with all of my senses is how strong you are, physically strong, to endure the work and the conditions, emotionally strong, to endure the unbearable struggle and emotional abuses, and psychologically strong because your oppressors are right above you, right upstairs. You can almost see them through the cracks in the floorboards. I can see the room right now. I can hear the footsteps and the kettle boiling and the babies crying. You can too. The people who lay claim to you as property are physically separated from you by two fucking inches of wood. I can't imagine the restraint. I feel your strength between the walls of this room and between my own skin and bones. We are the originators of grit. Now I know what I'm about to write is contextually implausible, but it's a feeling so big in me that I have to give it some air. I would have tried to kill them. Those people upstairs that are so close I can smell them, the ones who put chains on the doors at night and collars around my neck in the morning as I lay here staring at the small spaces between the floorboards, my gaze keeps falling on those huge iron poles hanging on the wall. Did you ever, even for a moment, think about killing them? These feelings of rage and violence, well, 
I'm not a murderer, so they've taken me a bit by surprise. But they are so close. I can hear them breathing. And on my exhale, all I can think of are the words, you don't get to own me. So what else is different? Well, besides what must seem like an unbelievable amount of opulence, air mattresses and sleeping bags and water bottles and melatonin pills. <laughs> I mean, I had to get a good night's sleep. <laughs> You'll notice that there are white and black people here sleeping on the same floor, side by side. Don't be alarmed. We are not in danger, sort of. Now we live side by side, one another in many places in America, and in some ways, we experience equality. But don't be fooled too much by these optics. If something were to accidentally happen to injure one of our white overnight hosts, and we needed to call paramedics or the police, you'd be looking at a room full of terrified brown people and that fear would feel very familiar to you. Most likely, given where we are, the authority that would respond would be a white man. And all of us, consciously or unconsciously, would say a silent prayer that he is a righteous one, that his gun won't replace the whip tonight. Oddly, I'm not afraid down here with you, and like Dara, I wish I had bought some offerings. I take a deep breath. There is so much to explain about the time and space between your world and mine and all the things that have changed and all the things that are the same. All of it complex, nuanced, winding, and nonlinear. We fought for rights you didn't have that some of us now don't use, like the right to vote. We have more economic parity, but that money leaves our community almost as quickly as it comes in. And some of us are in the same class as the overseers. We call that class the 99% now. I know I can't go back in time and rewrite history and take away all your suffering and all the trauma which has been inherited by each generation after you, making it hard for me sometimes to differentiate between the past and the present. But I wish your stories had not died with you. And that is the great gift of tonight. Through our voices, perhaps some of it has not. In loving connection, Tamika. Thank you. I'm trying to figure out why am I here lying on this uncomfortable wood floor? I feel frustrated, attempting to go to sleep. Between relaxation and the first layers of dozing off, I think of who am I and what am I designed to do on this planet? I'm hoping for a breakthrough by not being able to have comfort. I'm suffering from not being able to take care of my well-being. Being without is very hard for me. As we try to sleep, there are moments of calmness and turbulence. I go through rough periods to get to the peace. I am getting triggered with old memories of being displaced and not having a home of my own. 
I cry a little, then go back to sleep. My allergies kick in, then my lungs and my nose calm down. My two legs start to cramp. I do a little stretching to calm myself. My senses are bringing my wellness issues to the surface. Memories of anger, hurt, shame, and being held back. I don't want these feelings that shape my experience as an African-American woman. I need to keep my mind calm. I remind myself I'm not where I used to be. I'm guided to be patient. I was guided to come here, but I wish I could take care of myself to make sure I am comfortable. I feel my lack of well-being makes everyone else worried. I'm grateful for what I'm able to receive from others, like the car ride here and back and a blanket. I'm only going through a small amount of anguish. I know it can never match up to what my ancestors went through. I'm hoping this makes me stronger. In this space, I'm hoping I could do justice for my ancestors. I am feeling the ancestors' presence all around me. I remembered my great-grandmother who passed on her legacy by naming her unborn generation. I feel a hand on my shoulder. I turn knowing I'm not going to see anyone next to me. And once again, I feel a hand pressing into my shoulder. One of them is letting me know they are here among us. They made a vow to guide us and protect us. Our ancestors know what we are doing is important. Our ancestors have a mission as well. They made a promise that we who are living will never forget them. They don't want to be forgotten. They promise to be in partnership with us as long as we don't forget them. They may not understand our language, but they understand our hearts. As I struggle to find comfort, I think about what the enslaved dwellers went through. They didn't have the luxury to feel discomfort or complain like I do. I try to justify my complaining. It took years for me to peel through the layers of that sentence I protected. That sentence I masterfully fabricated into my existence. That sentence I hate to say in front of people. That sentence that defined who I thought I was. That sentence I kept a secret all these years. That sentence that whenever it has a chance to have a voice will keep the drama alive. The sentence is, my world will never work. There it is, out in the open. Now, you, now all of you know my mental run-on sentence. My world will never work. My ancestors, the enslaved, didn't have the privilege to complain like I do. I am facing how fortunate I am to be able to bring to light my wellness issues. I have learned more of my inner self. Shortly after I sleep, a strong voice comes through to make an announcement. I am startled into a sit-up position. The voice declares, you are freedom walker. At first, I'm not sure what I heard or what it means, but I write the name down. I'm the first to wake in the very early morning. When I step out of the cellar and climb the old stone stairs, I think about the morning for the enslaved and how differently their days must have begun. They had to place their iron collars on before entering out. It was a hive chain with an adjustable lock in the back. The front had the name of the family who owned them. I'm thinking about the children who had to wear this heavy collar around their little necks. 
How they must have cried in resistance. I discovered it rained lightly during the night. There's an extra dew on the grass. The break of dawn has a spiritual quality. I am alone, giving myself this moment to digest or process the overnight. I know I accomplished or embarked on a great portion of understanding of my journey, but I am not sure what this is yet. I think I will allow the universe to guide me. I go back in and lie down, waiting for the others to wake up. When they do, they all head out for breakfast. I'm the last one to leave. I climb the stairs to exit the cellar again and can't believe what I see before me. There is a race passing by in front of me. It feels so surreal to see that above the cellar, life is continuing on. I see runners, all ages and shapes, mainly Caucasians. I see so clearly the current black and white American psyche and how we carry on the ties to slavery. Caucasians need us to be a certain way so that they can thrive on top. There are those who are economically on the level of African Americans, but there is still that separation. When the economy improves, will it be open and equal for all? Or will it be that subtle language that we will get ours first and you must fight harder to achieve only 2% of what we will leave over for you? They have shown charity through the centuries, but is this over the guilt of what they have done? Are they trying to make up for what they once were? I wish Caucasians would stop. I'm tired of being on the end of charity. I want equality. I don't want you to feel sorry for me or be your burden anymore. I want to be free without judgment or fitting into some mold I can never fit in or some ideal I will never fulfill. I look at these runners, all quickly passing me by. They are running for optimum health, for their wellness and well-being. The freedom of this race of people who never had to be forced to be third class or less or ignored. Their body postures are upright. The expression on their faces might be tired, but no way near the tiredness my people have felt for centuries. These runners will never experience running for their lives. My people were running for their lives. They were running with the broken chains from their ankles, or if their foot was cut off, they were running with a stomp. They were running while they were starving and malnourished. They were running at night to hide. They were running hoping not to get caught. They were running while giving birth. They were running from humiliation, torture, and rape, both the men and the women. They were running from being sold. They were running to make the three-month journey to Canada. They were running and got lost. They were running for, they, they were not running for a marathon. They were running because they wanted to die a free person. All of a sudden, while watching these runners in disbelief, the name is announced to me again. You are Freedom Walker. You are Freedom Walker. Then the flashbacks of my father telling me about his native Indian grandmother. I remember she named the unborn generation and the name she passed on to me is Freedom Walker. I didn't understand the connection as a young person. I never met my great grandmother, but I want to honor her by becoming what she loved about her family's legacy. 
I want to do my best to grow into this name she gave me. Now as an older adult, going through this painful obstacle, I've uncovered the core of who I am. I am Freedom Walker. My world will work. This is my confirmation. Thank you. I remember traveling around Europe and people asking me, where are you from? I'd say New York. They would ask what I was and I'd say Jewish, African American. They would get this perplexed look and ask, but where are you from? I explained that my family doesn't know. Not knowing is the product of slavery. You don't know. My middle name is Furtick. It's my mother's maiden name. How does an African American end up with a German last name? because my ancestors were thought to be property of a German. This history doesn't feel like a distant past to me. I'm also Jewish. I visited Auschwitz and felt its presence, its weight. I touched the past of my ancestors there too. More so, I touched something human. I suspected I'd find that here too, something human. Human is not all pretty or humanitarian. It is filled with hate with dehumanizing vulgarities, with atrocities, but human nonetheless. Fear has kept us. Denial of what we do as humans is still just being afraid. I'll see with my own hands and accept the human condition. Accept and give love to my ancestral past, but also accept the viciousness that we as humans are capable of. To connect. To accept empathy in a way which has eluded me. To find it in the depth of this place. I wake up on the hardwood floor, the other still sleeping. Having seen with my own eyes, touched with my own hands, the relics, the chains, the rooms that kept us, the cruelty that kept us, the mindset our own and that of the oppressors that still has us kept. The night before the Juneteenth celebration, before we descended into these slave quarters, we sing. And I feel that spirit rise up, that lifting up, that feeling of ascension, hearing the voices of my ancestors and the Negro spirituals, asking it to let my people go. When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. It brings me back to my grandmother's church, Centennial. The entrance is on the side, downstairs, I'm all dressed up. Maybe my least favorite part. Sunday best, shirt and tie, dress coat and pants. I still don't like getting dressed up. Sunday school is in the basement, the room is large and it feels empty. My grandmother goes every Sunday, religiously. I just go because I have to. Bible study, the choir, gospel songs. We praise God. Who? I ask because I don't get it. And I listen to the singing because I do get it. The deep-rooted connection to our past, it feels like transcendence. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Oh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine.
in slave quarters thinking of how it might have been. This space that has been lost in time, lost in the semi-factual all too small sections of a history book glossed over like an unfortunate thing that happened in ancient history, but at least we have February, the shortest month. <laughs> this doesn't feel like a distant past to me, the lack of property of ownership for African Americans today, a people who did not receive their promised 40 acres and a mule is so very real today. The dehumanization is real today. I still have to talk to my son about how he has to work extra hard to make it, about how he must act if ever pulled over, just so he can make it home alive. Too many accounts have happened just in our time here tonight that will remind us all that it's very real today. If you can't see that, I can't help you. My skin color, which though is on the light side, is still real and darker than a paper bag reel. Dark enough. Dark enough to inherit this legacy of both trials and tribulations. And light enough that I have been afforded privileges that if I were darker, I would not have. Someone used my name as an example of why racism today is black people's fault. That black people need to do more to integrate. Look at Micah. He's college educated and comfortable around white people. Don't let me explain all the ways in which this statement is atrociously offensive. Should you need that list, please talk to me after the show. <laughs> but this is what we carry. Even our successes can be tainted. I'm just being me. But how much of that is my lighter skin, my Jewish last name, my polite nature, the way I don't dress, or my ability to speak the King's English? Here in this church tonight, I breathe. We breathe. And we listen. We listen for sounds of truth, listen for lost songs and shed tears in stone and wood. Think of this land and its ribbons of fields and trees. Think of running through them, running through grasses and thorns where there are now houses and stores. Think of running for freedom in the dark of night. And just like that river, I've been running ever since. It's been a long, long What is this freedom I think I now have? What holds me? What keeps me? What is beyond me? What songs can I sing? What stories will pass through me so that I may honor this moment and all before it? And then I think about retribution. Where do we go from here? Europeans decimated the world, enslaved Africa, nearly wiped out the native people of this land, brought opium wars and humiliation to China, causing it to close its doors, took over India, and on and on and on. Manifest destiny, they called it. And it's still happening. This is not a distant past to me. It gained so much wealth, power, privilege, opportunity, land, resources, time. 
time. We lost time. Time to move forward. While the enslaved took on courage and hope, biding time, Europeans advanced. Today, this amounts to centuries of ill-gotten gains. And still it clings to it, afraid to share, unable to ask for forgiveness because doing so might mean having to make it right. It might mean having to pay that debt. And don't get me wrong, Europe just got to it first. This is a human problem. But this is the great privilege that was gained, time. Time spent free while my ancestors were enslaved. Time spent pulling themselves up by their bootstraps while my ancestors spent time cooking and cleaning and working for others by force. Hell, my grandmother, just in order to get a proper education, had to cook and clean for a white family in South Carolina. There is a legacy of pain. How do we feel that? The fear of recognizing it seems too great. We seem to think recognizing it will drown us in it, drown us in that muddy water, that it won't let us go if we let it in, still losing time. It is hard to get time back. Still losing time spent in prison, time spent being extra polite, time spent sitting in detention, time spent expelled, time on the corner, time in rehab. Wait, we don't get to go to rehab. Time spent on parole, time spent explaining our blackness, time spent working extra hard to prove ourselves, time spent together too. Time like a verse and a chorus, time sung through and over generations waiting in the water. Time. Retribution is about giving time back. If time is not given back, eventually time is taken back. This perpetuates an endless war, trading time. There are few examples, if any, of humans relinquishing power of their own free will. And yet retribution needs this. Healing needs this. We as humans need this. To redistribute power so that we, we can all have time. Time to rejoice, time to sing, it's time to reclaim our time. I'm in Centennial again. It's been decades. It's my grandmother's funeral. We cry, we laugh. We hold each other and on to each other. We also sing. And I feel that spirit rise up, that lifting up, that transcendence, that ascension from the mud, from the shackles, from the past into a place not heaven, but in harmony. And we say amen. Amen is a word I enjoy hearing even if I don't say it often. Doesn't matter if God is believed in or not. No need to get tripped up on the words. No need to question such trivial things. It is simple, it is beautiful, it is love. Here in this church tonight, following the sacred sharing of stories, stories which have been buried for far too long, I say amen for my ancestors, amen. I say amen for those who suffer oppression today. Amen. amen. I say amen for those of us here tonight who will use their own voices to effect change. Amen. 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 Amen.
Thank you to our readers, Victory Reese, Dara Laurie, Freedom Walker, Tamika Ramsey, Micah, and to Terry James of The Slave Dwelling Project. Those beautiful acapella voices you heard were Reverend Evelyn J. Clark and Minister Teresa V. Briggs of the New Progressive Baptist Church. This episode of TMI Project Podcast was produced in partnership with Radio Kingston. Haley Downs produced and edited, and Marlon Barry mixed. Our Director of External Affairs is Sarah DeRose. The Operations Manager is Blake File. Shante Howe is the publicist for Season 2 of the podcast, and Clarissa Marie Ligon is our Black Stories Matter Virtual Workshop Manager. Lauren Gillers, our graphic designer and webmaster. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. Special thanks to Ida Hakla, Nate Brogan, Kale Capuchillin, Jimmy Buff, and Kashka Glowaska. For more about the story of Reclaiming Our Time, check out our website. Last week, we featured Terry James and Freedom Walker on our Inside Black Stories Matter series. Season two of the TMI Project podcast, Black Stories Matter, launches in October. Here's the part where we ask for your help. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. TMI Project is a nonprofit organization, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners. Help us to continue to create radically true stories that have the power to change the world. Make a donation today at tmiproject.org.